0: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 365 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing whether fantasy and science fiction writers should get an MFA in creative writing, and also giving our advice to writers who do want to get an MFA. And you should also check out our panel on writing workshops back in episode 134, and our panel on professors versus fantasy back in episode 257. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Steph Grossman, who you may remember from our panel on live action role-playing back in episode 259. She's worked for several publishing houses, including Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, and her writing has appeared in Hobart and & Paste and is forthcoming in Joyland. She was recently accepted into the Creative Writing MFA program at Texas State University. So, Steph, welcome to the show. Good to be back. The next up, we've got Chandra Klang smith who you may remember from our panel on Maniac back in episode 335 and from our future interview in episode 301. Her novel, The Sky is Yours, about a surreal science fiction city that for decades has been under attack by dragons, was published in 2018 by Hogarth. She has an MFA in creative writing from Columbia University, and she recently finished up her first semester of teaching in the creative writing MFA program at Sarah Lawrence College. So, Chandra, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And also joining us today is John Kessel, who you may remember from our panel on The Man in the High Castle back in episode 179, and from our feature interview back in episode 269. He's the author of such novels as The Moon and the Other and Corrupting Dr. Nice, and such short story collections as The Pure Product and The Bomb Plan for Financial Independence. He helped organize the Creative Writing MFA program at North Carolina State University and also served as its first director. So, John, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
0: Okay. So and if people don't know, Stephanie is my girlfriend and she applied this, this past year to 20 MFA programs. So it's been a big part of our life this past year doing the whole MFA application thing. And I was figuring since we've gone through this process and we know so much about it now that we might share that info with listeners in case anyone else wants to learn from our uh, experience. And so Stephanie, why don't you start out and tell us about just what is an MFA degree for people, especially outside the USA who might not know And why do you want one so much?
3: (laughs) Uh, So an MFA is a Master of Fine Arts, um, which, you know, depending on who you talk to, if you say MFA, they might think that you mean like a visual arts degree. Um, But in the U.S., uh, MFA often is associated with uh, an MFA in creative writing. Um, So, yeah, it's a master's level degree. It's a terminal degree. Um, You know, there's no additional schooling that you're supposed to do past that. Uh, whereas in other countries, um, they don't, most of them don't have MFA degrees. They usually have MA degrees, which are just the master's degrees in creative writing. Um, and those are usually only like one year. Um, in the U.S., they can be anywhere from one year to four years, depending on which school you get into. Um, so the one that I'm going to at Texas State University is actually three years. Uh, but I applied to many that were only two year, two year long programs um and then there's a few that I applied to that were four year long programs so um uh basically why, why do I want one so much uh, or why did I want one and now I'm getting into one um it's there's a, a bunch of reasons why I wanted one um the first thing i think that everyone should probably know and which is what everybody told me when i was applying was that you do not need an mfa to be a writer um which is very true especially in the science fiction and fantasy community um I, in particular, uh, like to straddle the line between, you know, speculative fiction and then more realistic fiction as well. So I write both. And I felt that while, you know, while having an uh, SFF writing uh, pension, um, you know, wouldn't require a master's degree or an MFA, um, I felt that, you know, wanting to be on the more literary literary quote unquote side of some things, um, I felt that an MFA is actually a little bit more esteemed um, for that. So I wanted to be able to, you know, have my foot in both in both areas. And um, another thing that is that I've seen a lot of my friends and a lot of people I know just get a lot from their MFA programs, um, you know, once they've graduated uh, through, you know, connections or through professors championing their work. Um, and I wanted to be able to do that. Plus, an MFA does allow you to teach as well. Um, you you know, once you have that master's degree, you could teach at the high school level. Uh, depending on the high school, you could also teach at the college level with a master's degree. Um, so I wanted to open up all of those doors for myself, um, especially since I'm, you know, very invested in being a writer.
0: All right, cool. And so how about Chandra? So listening to Stephanie lay out those reasons why she wants an MFA, what do you think about those reasons? Are those good reasons? Is that true, what she's saying?
1: I think, yeah, I agree with a lot of what she just said, but it is funny because I think being on the other side of it, then you have a degree of maybe cynicism or, you, <laughs> you know, you, you've seen the ways in which uh the MFA doesn't necessarily do all of the things that you might have hoped that it would do. So I guess that I also have, you know, I have an MFA in creative writing, and I'm really glad that I do. Um, But a couple of things that I would jump in and say, I think that like, Getting an MFA as kind of teaching certification is sort of a risky proposition because in my experience, um, an MFA will often give you an opportunity to teach while you're in the program as part of a fellowship, depending on the school that you're going to and their association with an English department and stuff like that. But... Um, and, and then that can um, translate into after you're done getting like, you know, adjunct jobs teaching like, you know, first-year first, first year comp to students. Um, and I, I've definitely known a lot of people who have done that. So in that sense, it does enable you to teach at the college level. But if what you want to do is teach creative writing, it's actually a lot more valuable to, um, you know, to publish well and to get your work out there. And there are actually people very visibly who um, have gotten creative writing and teaching positions without having an MFA or sometimes even a BA. Like Jonathan Leatham is an example of somebody who didn't – I think he might have eventually been awarded an honorary BA from somewhere, but he didn't even finish college and he has like a tenured professorship at Pomona. So in a lot of ways, if what you want to do is teach, like focusing on publishing is more useful. But what I where I would totally agree with so, that. So really,
0: the more the more practical path is just to become a famous best selling author. <laughs> and absolutely. You don't need to worry about that. Nah.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and even even not necessarily the best selling part, but just getting your work, you know, published in ways that are really visible and reviewed, and um, you know, that that's on people's radar. You're more likely to get creative writing teaching positions because of that. But where I totally agree with Steph is that both the actual education you get in your MFA and the connections you forge there can be very useful with achieving that, you know, um with finding an agent, with navigating the publishing world, with getting pre-publication blurbs from people. All of that stuff is very helpful if if you're part of this community of writers that are like, you know, dedicated to being in this industry and um yeah, are in communication with each other, they have, and, and it also just even getting an agent to, um, request your manuscript, you're a little bit more likely to get an edge with that if you have an MFA because you can mention it in your cover letter and that gives them some sort of sense of this person has already dedicated years to their craft. There's probably something worth checking out here. So I think it's, I think it's helpful, but I think that sometimes going into the process, you think, okay, well, I'll get this degree and that will kind of, um, give me the certification I need to achieve certain things. And it's really more like it might give you the skills that you need or the connections you need, but it doesn't just translate into, you know, here's kind of, kind of your license to be a writer. if hmm.
0: That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Where do I get that? I want, that's what I want. The license. Yeah. To be a writer. <laughs> if
1: only, right.
0: Well, so, so John, what do you think listening to Stephanie
2: and Chandler? Are we just wrong about everything or like, no, no, think? actually I agree with much of what both Chandler and Stephanie said. I, I um, we, I always tell students who are applying to our program at N- NC State that uh, the main reason to go is to, r- to write better. And uh, that's the one thing you can hope to count on uh, if you have good instruction and good uh, cohort of uh, fellow students. Uh, you're going to spend a lot of time writing and, and reading and thinking about writing and learning skills and, and uh, really uh, immerse yourself in it for at least two years. Uh, our program is a two-year program. And uh you will come out with a credential that uh, is a terminal degree. <laughs> that sounds deadly, but a terminal <laughs> degree is a degree meaning you don't necessarily have to go on for a further degree in order to teach at a university. So, with a, an MFA, is a terminal degree like like a Ph.D. in a way, although not as in, intense or as long a degree. So that qualifies you at least on paper to teach at a college or university, but uh, as, uh, was it Chandler said that it it really depends on your publications and that's, that's going to be the bottom line. I know from doing searches to hire faculty members that that's the first thing we're going to look at is their publication record. And if you don't have a strong publication record, you will not get a university job. So if you go to an MFA program, MFA program in order to get a teaching certification, then that's not the best reason to go. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, the real reason is to go to go is to is to write better and to uh you know to be in a community where writing is important which is not necessarily true to all the other people you see in your life uh maybe you you your spouse cares or your mom cares but uh, most people at the supermarket don't care uh, as long as you can pay the bill so um uh, that I think is, uh, uh, the main thing is to, is to work on your writing. Uh, one of the other things I think, and I'm curious to what Stephanie and Chandler have to say about this, is that there are, there are 300 or 400 MFA programs in creative writing in the United States right now. And, um, but many of them are not taught by or necessarily, uh, friendly toward uh, genre fiction, it seems to me. And so I think one thing, I'm very curious, for instance, when Stephanie applied to these different, uh, programs, how did she select them? And is the Texas program she's going to, uh, is it openly, uh, 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 friendly toward, uh, uh, SFF or, or is it, you know, not, um, you know, some, it's something that she'll have to do, uh, sort of, uh, uh, mm-hmm. secretly or on the side or, or I, I <laughs> Yes, right. Uh, and it does seem to me that, uh, there's a lot more fiction being published today that is uh, not realism mm-hmm. and uh, by people who don't label themselves genre writers. So I think that there there's more opening for that even in a program where none of the people on the faculty have any genre connections whatsoever. But it does seem to me that programs, uh, if you're writing science fiction or fantasy, uh, it wouldn't hurt to have somebody on the program who who knows that world, like me. Or uh, when I went to graduate school, I went to the University of Kansas, and James Gunn, an old-time uh, science fiction writer, a uh, grandmaster of SFWA, is on the faculty there. He was very instrumental in my learning to write the stuff. And, uh, you know, places like Stone Coast, the low residency program, has people like uh, James Patrick Kelly and uh, uh, many other writers who are genre uh, uh, well published in genre. So that's something to think about too. Look at who, who the faculty are.
0: Yeah. Well, so Steph, why don't you talk about that? What was your process for selecting these different schools and how much did you, um, you know, let your geek flag fly, uh, <laughs> in the application process?
3: Well, uh, I feel like I have so much to say on this, so I hope that I don't take up too much like airtime, uh, because I did apply to, yeah, 20 schools, uh, part of that reason is because I was coming across actually a lot of programs that were friendly towards speculative fiction based on people I met um, who had been there and who had written speculative fiction and it was received well. Um, another factor that was in like why I decided to apply to many of these schools was that they were fully funded. So that's another thing um, to consider uh, when you're thinking about MFA programs okay, uh, okay well let's let's oh. do the
0: fully funded thing in a bit but like oh okay in terms of science fiction what schools did you did were they all, all the schools you applied to were they all friendly to science fiction or did you apply to any that weren't or like Not... did you apply with science fiction in your application I got it. um
3: yeah so uh so i think mostly every school that i applied to was you know ha- had at least one instance that I knew of that they had a speculative fiction writer, you know, that was accepted and had been accepted with a speculative fiction um, piece. So obviously, um, you know, one of the programs that was most friendly to speculative fiction was um, Sarah Lawrence College, um, because they have a speculative fiction track that's new. I think it's um, only opened in the last, like, Two years, and that's where Chandler has taught, um, within that program. And, uh, so, you know, so that one, you know, very openly wants speculative fiction writers. Um, but, uh, what I did in order to prepare to, to like find this information was, um, that I basically like scoured the internet for, to find out like whether certain schools were speculative fiction friendly or not. Um, and yeah, I'd say that any, that majority of the schools I applied to, like I said, were spec-friendly. I mean, ones that might surprise you are, you know, like University of Michigan um, was one I applied to. That's extremely uh, popular to get into. Um, that was where, uh, Kristen Rupinian went, who wrote Cat Person. Um, but most people actually don't know that she was also a Clarion, uh, graduate of the Clarion Writers Workshop. And, um, and so, and she had been, you know, submitting to science fiction and fantasy magazines, like, before she even got her MFA, um, at Michigan. Um, and, uh, and then there's, you know, University of Alabama, which is another one I applied to, which, was, um, which is where Andy Duncan has gone. Um, and they also have Black Warrior Review, which is known for being much more speculative fiction friendly in terms of uh, literary magazines. Um, Virginia Tech openly allows for speculative fiction. Um, you know, I asked them directly, are you guys okay with science fiction and fantasy? And they were like, yeah, we want people to apply with that. Um, and that was the same for, uh, what was it, for um, uni- uh, Rutgers University at Camden. I have a list. Yeah, so, so Steph
0: has all these, w- 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 let's not read through all your okay. notes here. All right. Um, yeah. Maybe we can come back to some of the stuff. But So you mentioned that, um, you know, there's this new SPECFIC program at Sarah okay. Lawrence. Yeah. So Chandra, why don't you jump in on that and just talk about what your experience with that has been?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had an awesome experience, uh, last semester teaching for them, um, in, you know, their speculative fiction track. And, uh, basically exactly like Steph said, um, you know, they, so when we talk about tracks in MFA programs, generally the standard is, uh, fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Um, but then occasionally you'll have these programs that specifically have another track, like, you know, children's writing or like different things like that. And in the case of Sarah Lawrence, they specifically have a track that is speculative fiction. So, um, you know, the expectation then is that you're going to produce a thesis that's within that, you know, that, that very broad genre, um, of, you know, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, or in this case, speculative fiction. And that means that they've really been trying to, you know, um, yeah, develop a, a you know, a, a faculty, like they have had, like, sort of a series of different adjuncts coming in, um, giving lots of different voices and perspectives in, in that field. And I think it's really exciting. So I got to teach a craft class to them where, we were reading a lot of writers that were, you know, genre bending. Uh, we read people like, uh, Victor Laval and, um, Mark Danielewski and, um, you know, Jonathan Leatham actually, um, Kelly Link and, and then also people that were sort of classics of science fiction, uh, like Philip K. Dick. So I think that it's, it's really exciting that that's something that's not just respected, but that's actually being kind of incorporated and interrogated in a really direct way in some of these programs. But I'd also agree. I mean, I, I'm sure that there are programs out there where there would be either hostility or confusion toward speculative writing, but I feel like they're getting fewer and farther between, like even University of Iowa, which you think of as kind of the most traditional um, kind of, you know, gold standard of MFA programs, they've produced people like uh, Carmen Maria Machado and um, Benjamin Hale, who wrote The Evolution of Bruno Littlemore, which is about a chimp who's in a scientific experiment, um, you know, those are recent grads of their program. So I feel like it's really more a question of looking for faculty who inspire you and, um, you know, and talking to current or recent grads about like what their experiences have been. But I definitely don't think that the landscape out there is hostile toward speculative writing. Um, Yeah, if anything, I think it's seen as being kind of uh, exciting and sexy and and new, which is something these programs want, you know?
0: Well, let me just add, too, that in terms of the program that Stephanie got accepted to, um, Uh the director of the program is Doug Dorst, who's appeared as a guest on this show, and he wrote a book in collaboration with J.J. Abrams. um, And at least one of his novels is sort of like a ghost uh, detective story. Um, And then Karen Russell is uh, sort of temporary faculty right now. And so, obviously, you know, there's there's people there you can work with who are friendly to surreal, fantastic sorts of fiction.
3: Yeah, I'd say actually. And sorry, um, I <laughs> was gonna I was launching into my list when Dave asked me that uh, the question before, but um, I realized that I didn't answer that. I, you know, that yeah, that I was looking for yeah, faculty that have the background in speculative fiction. If the, if I've heard of any students that have gotten in with speculative fiction. Um, and then when I applied, I applied with. Uh, two stories for most of the programs, and one of them was, you know, straight up realism. It was a little quirky, but it was straight up realism. And then the other one, uh, played with some speculative fiction themes, um, and was ambiguous as to whether it was actually speculative or not. Uh, but I know of people who have applied with straight up science fiction and fantasy to the, you know, Iowa Writers Workshop and gotten in. So I think, um, like Chandler was saying, at this point, you know, in a way, it's almost overwhelming that you don't just apply to wherever you think you might fit in. Um, Or even if you don't know if you'll fit in because you just never know. It's like the, you know, persistence and... You know, putting yourself out there um, as much as you can and just seeing what sticks, basically. But
0: I mean, one of your story stuff that you sent to at least to some places is about aliens living, like aliens from yeah. outer space living openly among us. And I was encouraging you not to send that story everywhere because I thought that there might be some you know, resistance to that type of science fiction.
3: Yes. And so I that was why I chose to apply with, you know, two of them, you know, the other two stories and with one of them being a more quieter speculative fiction um, story. But yes, I did have one that was, you know, had all the stops with aliens and, you know, uh, psychological horror going on. Um, And I did apply to uh, Sarah Lawrence with that. Um, and I also applied to Iowa Writers Workshop with that. I did not get into Iowa Writers Workshop. Um, and then I also applied to well, they're Virginia be sorry. Tech. Yeah, they'll be sorry. <laughs> um, and then I also applied to Virginia Tech with that. And that, um, and that, cause they're another one, like I've, like I said, that are open to it. And I applied with that and did not get in. Um, another thing is that a lot of these programs, um, many of them outside, that are outside of New York City are really small. They only accept, like, you know, Four or five uh, new students a year um, per genre. So, you know, um, so when I'm saying that I applied to like Iowa and and all these and didn't get in, it's because the percentage. I mean, not not. It, it doesn't necessarily. It doesn't say necessarily. About the type of story that you yeah, it doesn't yeah. mean yeah. that. Like it basically like the the odds were like less than one percent at majority of these schools. They're harder to get into than Harvard Law School. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean my perception is that as Chandler was saying, that if you want to write sort of like Kelly Link kind of stories, there's probably lots and lots of programs that are more or less receptive to that. But my sense anyway is that if you want to write like George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice right. and
2: Fire or James S. A. Corey The Expanse, you're gonna have a really hard yeah. time. You, uh, I, John I, I have to agree with that. I think if you you know, I have aliens in outer space, if you're setting your story three hundred years in the future, uh, if you have faster than light travel, if you have time travel with not, if you have time travel like Audrey Niffenegger or whatever, uh, you know, where someone just is born with the ability to go back and forth in time, you might be able to get away with it. But if you've got a machine, um, then, then it's going to, the more it seems like traditional science fiction, the less comfortable programs will be with it. The more it's like Kelly Link, I mean, sure, or, or Gabriel Garcia Marquez or, or any number of other writers who, you know, Basically, if the story is set in the present and it has some really odd thing in it, uh, then I think then you, you, you won't raise as many, uh, eyebrows. Uh, but I think that the traditional, uh, science fiction, anything that resembles Star Wars or Star Trek or, or, or even so much Phil K. Dick, I think would, would be, uh, a lo- some places would look a little sideways at it. Um, it's interesting to me that, uh, Chandler says that at Sarah Lawrence they have this track for spec fic. And that's, that's, I think, in some ways a good thing, but I have mixed emotions about that. Uh, at NC State, the, what we've done is everyone's in the same workshops and there are, there's no track for speculative fiction. So that in the room, you know, we have a, a two year program. We take seven fiction writers every year. So we have 14 students at any one time, uh, in, in the workshop and, maybe you know it's been as many as out of those 14 four maybe five writing something resembling speculative fiction and the rest are not and uh, i kind of like the idea that these you're sort of forced to talk to one another and and compare notes and think about what what are the differences between these kinds of stories and um i what i sort of don't I'm worried about is that there still be this little ghetto off there where the spec fic writers will be have their own little room by themselves <laughs> and we won't have to dirty our hands with having to deal with what they do uh i'm i sort of spent my entire career trying to yank speculative fiction and into and put it into the faces of the traditional literary culture uh so uh, i'm not to really denigrating that that in fact in in the up flip side of it would be probably you get more useful instruction in how to write spec fic if you're that's all you're talking about. Well uh, what,
1: what I would say about the Sarah Lawrence pro- program, I I, sh- I share some of your concerns about that, but um the thing that I saw there that I found really exciting was that within the you know small sampling of speculative fiction students that that I saw in my class, um I really saw this incredible range where um you know, I had one student who really wanted to write, like, you know, authorian romances and, um, was really, you know, engaged with, like, you know, that mythology and that tradition. Um, you know, I, I had other students that were, you know, really steeped in sort of traditional sci-fi or traditional fantasy. And then I had other students within the speculative fiction track that were, you know, really big fans of, uh, Bolano or Pynchon or, you know, writers right. that are, They're using those, those SF elements, but in these very postmodern ways. And, um, you know, I see myself as being really smack dab in the middle of that spectrum. So for me, it was so fun to be able to kind of reach in both directions and, and see those students, um, you know, where the fact that something was going to be imaginative and fantastical, that was a given. But then the question of the tools and conventions that they were relying on to, uh, to, to deliver that content were different. I think that the thing that I found exciting about that is that sometimes in my MFA, not not always, but occasionally the conversation would turn to should there be a speculative element at all, and that was never the starting point of the conversation in the specfic track. It was always right. you know a question of could this be more innovative or surprising, or could it bring in elements of another speculative genre?" but it wasn't saying, "Hey, maybe the ghost should just be a hallucination or metaphor you know and and i right. I, I, I find I found that really inspiring like um so yeah, I saw them pushing each other in really interesting directions. But I I get what you're saying because I I think that when things are too hermetically sealed, of course the you know the maximum cross contamination is always my thing. <laughs> I, I think that, you know <laughs> everyone just, some,
2: yeah, yeah, let's, let's everyone should read
1: up. yeah everyone should read voraciously and you know all different genres because they all have so much to offer us. But um but yeah I I do think that the argument for starting the conversation as these are going to be speculative tales. Now, how do you want to approach that? That can be really freeing and empowering for those writers.
0: I mean, I think it is valuable if you're writing hard science fiction to get a sense of how people who don't ordinarily read hard science fiction, how they respond to it. But at the same time, I also feel like there are certain, um, you know, there's a certain knowledge base and certain skills that you have to have to write and in many cases, even just to read hard science fiction. And if you're around people who haven't read, read it and haven't written it there's just a limited amount of the skills that they're going to be able to transfer to you that's going to I, make I, your hard science fiction I, better hard i science think fiction.
2: that there's some real truth to that and and um and i come from the old school here of of uh, the real science fiction world the old-fashioned science fiction world and and i think that that that's really um uh, you know it still exists but there is a there's a lot of fiction being published which you call i don't know slipstream fiction or kelly linkish fiction and and that's a whole whole genre by itself and that's mostly what i see from my grad students who are writing uh, uh speculative work uh not so much uh you know um and if they write a zombie story it, in some ways it's a tongue in cheek zombie story uh and and a, as chandler su- suggests that it can border on the zombies being metaphorical even though they may be real zombies uh, it's really interesting to talk about these differences because there are differences and I don't want to minimize, uh, the differences. At, at NC State, we've had a, a, a su- considerable success with students coming in who have gone on to have careers like Andy Duncan, for instance, got his master's degree here, uh, before he went on to Alabama and got his MFA. And, uh, uh, Jason Lundberg was here. And, and then in the MFA, we've had, uh, Kiz Johnson and Alyssa Wong, Helena Bell, Jay Wolfington, uh, and recently Cadwell Turnbull, whose new novel, uh, The Lesson, is just coming out and getting some real advanced notice there. But, but, um, you know, most of their work, I, I think, is not, you're not seeing a lot of, uh, Robert Heinlein type science fiction being written, uh, by, by the students that I'm seeing anyway. See, Steph um, is anxious to jump in here. Uh-
3: Oh, well, I, I was actually going to ask John, um, if, if somebody does apply to NC State with hard science fiction or with something that's, you know, more speculative than yeah. something like Kelly Link or Karen Russell, um, you know, is, have you seen people get into the program with that or, you know, coming from the, right. the, yeah, being on the committee, uh, how is that received at NC State?
2: Right. Well. In terms of uh, admissions, we every student has to be passed uh, by all three of the uh, full-time fiction writer faculty there, and so the others are Wilton Barnhart and Bell Boggs, neither of whom writes spec fic, but they're both open to it. But I have to say, yeah, if you came in with your space opera, it would be, I would have to be going to bat for that student, <laughs> for, the, for that student to be admitted, and and that does happen. But but uh, in some ways. Uh, um, they, you know, their their idiom is is not as familiar to my faculty colleagues. Uh, but on the other hand, we've had, as I say, these people have come into our workshop and have have done uh, done well. But, I, I, you know, I can't say that we're getting a lot of analog writers uh, in the MFA program.
0: Well, when I would say that if you are writing epic fantasy or sword and sorcery or space opera and things like that, uh, I think you'd probably be much happier going to Clarion or Odyssey, mm-hmm. these six-week summer workshops where you're going to be surrounded by more hardcore science fiction fantasy fans. Um, and, and yeah, definitely do your research and don't just apply to you know, your local MFA program and expect that you're going to get helpful feedback on, on work like
2: that. I, I would agree with that.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, Steph? Um Well, one other thing I was going to say is that, because uh, I, I share the same concerns about you know, about sidelining speculative fiction in a completely separate genre at a lot of these schools. At the same time, um, you know, basically as a applicant, um, it's really, I mean, even though I did a ton of research, it's really hard to find like what schools are definitely going to be accepting of it and what schools aren't. So, you know, so you, you can be guessing, um, you know, like I said, majority of them will at least be friendly to some some aspect of it especially if you're writing things in more slipstream in the slipstream genre but um yeah i think besides sarah lawrence college um and besides you know uh stone coast uh when i was looking um you know most of the schools don't really touch on whether they're accepting of it or not even if They've been proven to be accepting of it. So it's not really like in the materials, whereas if they have a track that's actually speculative, you know, fiction, they can talk about that and then you can – that's like calling to you, you know.
2: That makes very good sense to me. So that that's a real justification for having such a track, it seems to me. Yeah,
1: -hmm. it sort of sends up a flair to (laughs) – Yeah.
2: well, and also, also, I mean, Chandler
0: mentions, uh, like Andy Duncan, I mean, if you can find a program where a specific person who you know, mm-hmm. you know, that you're going to be able to work with, I mean, that's, you know, something to look for. And just I would definitely get in touch with that person and make sure that they're not going on sabbatical or, you know, that they're mm-hmm. going to be there and are going to be able to work with you if, if you're going to a school specifically to work with a particular author. Um I also just mentioned I interviewed this guy David Bishop and he's uh he was running the program at Edinburgh Napier University and he was really pitching it as very very friendly to fantasy and science fiction.
3: Yeah, I've heard about that too and I was looking into that. I only applied to um American schools, but if I was looking if we were looking to move <laughs> to uh the UK, uh that would have definitely been on my list.
2: Do any of you worry about the so-called the workshop style that people say MFAs uh, impose on on young writers?
1: You know, I really feel increasingly that that's a myth. Um, I, you know, it, I'm not saying that there has never been a case where there's especially a particularly like charismatic and forceful professor who kind of like forces people into the same slot. But from my experience being in an MFA program, um, teaching, you know, non-credit adult education kind of writing workshops and then, and then teaching at Sarah Lawrence, I, I feel like every group of students is going to have a kind of different combined aesthetic. And the thing I always tell my students, um, in, in every class that I teach is that like, you know, we're not a committee that's voting on your story. Like all the credit and all the blame for this go to you alone. Like, you just have to sift through this feedback and figure out what resonates with you. I mean, it's very rare that somebody actually has to change their work in order to graduate from a program. It's really more a question of exposing yourself to this range of feedback. So I kind of feel like the people that are going to end up writing a quote-unquote MFA story as a result of being in an MFA program are going to end up just sort of playing to whatever they think the publishing industry wants if they don't get an MFA, because it, it, it means that you're somebody who's looking to someone else to, you know, to, to help direct your vision in, in a way that's not necessarily true to what your vision is. And so I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of not really convinced that that's the, the big risk that a lot of people kind of, you know, talk it up to be. I don't know. But I, I'd be curious what others think.
0: Uh, I, yeah, I didn't really find – I mean, I, I found – my experience in a program – I went to USC – um, it was a, it was the MPW program. So it wasn't just creative writing. It was also nonfiction and screenwriting and stuff, but it was, you know, very similar. Um, but yeah, I, I found that, um, the, the experience was, I mean, cause I, and at that point, I'd already been to Clarion and Odyssey and so on, which I, I thought were much more intense experiences. And in comparison, I found at least, uh, a, a graduate creative writing program to be pretty laid back. And if I had any, you know feedback it would be that it should be more you know they should be molding people more than they are i, I found it was kind of you know people would come in and they would go around and mostly people like oh this is pretty good you know maybe you could change this little thing or whatever and uh i felt like it was so kind of kid gloves that um i would actually have the opposite
2: concern that people would not be uh engaged as much with the uh,
0: yeah that their writing work. wouldn't really be changed at all because they weren't you know everyone was just being told like oh this is pretty good like you know and, and no one was really putting the screws to anybody
3: i think it depends on the program um i mean i'm i, I haven't been in one yet so i you know so now that i'm off to one i guess i'll, I'll be on the lookout for that for sure um with my experience with even just taking um you know, one-off class, one-off workshops, such as the one I did with Chandler at Catapult, um, I found that to not be imposing, um, on my, on my style at all. And if anything, um, just having all that feedback actually pushed me and brought out things in me as a writer that I don't think that I could have ever come up with myself. So in a way I'm like nervous that once I'm out of the MFA program, that I won't have that community to like pull stuff out of me. Um, in the same way that, yeah, that, that I, you know, I, I can't do it on my own, I think.
1: I'm really glad that was your experience. Yeah. And the other thing I'd say is that, like, you know, I think that the, I, 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 yeah, I think what Dave's describing is, is very true. And then I think that, like, when you have a class where students are more passionate, it's often that they're passionate in different directions. Like, another thing I talk about at the beginning of every workshop I teach is, this should be a clash of aesthetics. And you come to define what you value in fiction more through, like, you know, dialogue and conflict with, like, your peers. I mean, respectful conflict. But, like, that is usually the sign of passion is not that there's, you know, a single, uh like, Monty Python foot stomping down on your work. It's really more like there are these different forces that you have to kind of think about, like, you know, do I want to push in this direction or in this other diametrically opposed one?
2: I think that that's uh, that that's my experience as well uh, and I, I think there's plenty of passion that goes on in the in the workshop and people have strong opinions but they are not all aligned in the same direction. and uh, there may be some things that you know I think MFA workshops tend to say focus on character more than plot and care more about pro style than they do about uh, having a, a, a conclusive ending to the story. Um those are very large uh uh in general uh uh predilections. But I, I do think that in, in a program the best students come through, they they come out of it having really uh, uh, established some better sense of their vision of what they want to do and what they don't want to do. And a good workshop, it seems to me, offers you alternatives. You see what other people do. You see what you do. You see how a number of really intelligent people who are devoted to writing, who care about it a lot, react to it. It doesn't mean because someone doesn't like what you do that you're doing something wrong. It just means that you have to figure out, well, what, why am I doing this? And what, you know, why are they objecting if they're objecting? And, and, uh, do I care? Uh, in the end, you, I think, come to a better sense of who you are as a writer, which is the main reason to do this also I think you you know you try things too i I like it when students try things outside of their comfort zone to see how it works and uh uh you know that doesn't always uh lead to uh, uh you know, it's like blind alley sometimes but but you've learned something from that as well
0: yeah well, let me just say i mean I, I also kind of felt that. A lot of people come out of MFA programs without ever having had a conversation about how do you get an agent? You know, what's an advance? Um, I mean, do you you think that that's something that an MFA program should be talking about or?
1: I will say that at Columbia, um, they they did deliberately do a few things that, um, you know, were supposed to prepare us for those aspects of the writer's life. Uh, you know, for example, they had a series called Life After the MFA when I was there where they would bring in a panel of agents or a panel of editors who would sort of talk about what they were looking for. They also have an annual agents party where it's like this weird combination of, I don't know, speed dating and networking where uh, you go around, you know, you go go to this cocktail party basically and pitch your novel to a variety of agents who are there and get sometimes uh, – you know, damning responses. Um, so I, I think that those things w- were useful. But I'd also sort of caution against MFA programs becoming completely focused on the professional aspects. I, I think that I think it's important for students to be informed. But I also think that it's important to give people a space and ideally, uh, as Steph was talking about earlier, funding to spend a couple of years experimenting and trying things out without necessarily thinking first and foremost about the market. Like, because I think that that's really important in finding your voice. Um, If you're doing something new, there might not instantly be comp titles or a popular franchise that it resembles, but that doesn't mean it isn't worth trying to discover that thing.
0: Right. I just feel like, I mean, it shouldn't be the, primary focus or the total focus or anything. But I, I just okay. feel like a lot of people, um, you know, they, they like writing. And so they get a English degree in an undergraduate. And then they're kind of like, well, I don't really know what to do next. Let me get an MFA in creative writing. That seems like the next logical step. And then they end up with gigantic student loans uh, that are going to make it hard to be a writer because you don't generally make a ton of r- money as a writer. And I, I just feel like there should be a little bit more of a kind of cooling people in along the way. Uh, about some of those dynamics.
1: We should really talk about funding because I think that that's a very important part of this conversation.
0: Oh, right. Well, so I interrupted Steph before when she was going to try to talk about (laughs) that. So Steph, why don't you, uh, I'll give you a chance now to jump in and talk about that.
1: I've been chomping at the
3: bit about (laughs) funding because basically when I was, you know, younger and asking people about MFAs, like the, you know, time and time again, the advice that I was given was, yeah, yeah, like do an MFA. You don't need an MFA to write but if you do an MFA, you know, don't pay for it. You you should get, you know, get. basically they said don't pay for it. But they weren't saying how. Um, so I assume. Yeah, like, what does that mean? Don't what does that it? even mean? Just don't pay for it. <laughs> like, go to, get just like get it stupid. and then
0: don't just bail yeah, on your yeah. bills. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So I was interpreting that as, oh, okay, well, if your parents can pay for it, you know, okay, maybe. Or if I got like some weird like fellowship, like that was outside of an MFA program like i i think um when i was graduating from college i applied for the marshall scholarship which would have given me you know full funding to any program that i would wa- would have wanted in the uk uh but i didn't get it so it's you know so then i was like well how else can you do it then once i started looking into mfa programs and became very serious about it um you know over the last few years uh, i realized there's actually f- over fifty fully funded MFA programs throughout the country, where if you get in, you're guaranteed to not have to pay, um, you know, any tuition, um, and/or they most of them are going to give you right out the bat um, some sort of assistantship or fellowship so that you have a stipend to live on. Um, obviously, those aren't extremely high, but they are. You know, net positive rather than net negative for you. Um, and, um, the other thing I was finding is that majority of those programs are not in New York City, which is this weird thing because New York City, of course, is the hub of, you know, publishing. Uh, but yet majority of the programs there, um, you know, don't, uh, do, you know, do require, almost all of them require you to pay a certain amount of money, um, I will say that if you are really interested in New York City, like NYU does provide some fully funded spots. Brooklyn College does provide some fully funded spots. Um, And uh, what was it? Um, Hunter is fully funded um, for everyone, but they only accept like six students a year. Um, and then everything else, you know, you're gonna get minimal funding, basically. So I even, I got into the new school as well, and, spe- and Sarah Lawrence College for the speculative fiction track. Um, Sarah Lawrence, I think, gave me like a $2,000 scholarship each year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, the new school gave me a 60% scholarship per year, but that was still gonna be over 20 grand worth of, uh, of, Debt. Uh, once I was done with it, um. Whereas at Texas State is it's one that is not you know it's not fully funded across the board, but ninety percent of the students get um you know full funding um and you know a stipend to live on. Uh, but that's the thing You, you either sort of are choosing between New York City, um, and paying a lot on top of living in New York City and paying a lot for that. Or you, you know, can go somewhere else in the country that's, you know, a cheaper place to live, but you're going to get, you know, a net positive in your in your pocket, which then makes it more like an actual, you know, several years to truly devote to your writing and you're not racking up debt, basically.
0: Right. And Steph was also able to get a TA ship. So she's going to yeah. be teaching, you know, undergraduate uh, English courses. Um, but even with that, I mean, she's taking in, you know, Steph was working in marketing in New York City yeah. and making like a very sort of median salary and to to move to this to uh you know mfa program she's taking an 80 percent pay cut mm-hmm. so yeah, if anyone right. was thinking about supporting geeks guide to the galaxy over at <laughs> patreon.com
2: slash geeks <laughs> this would be a good time
3: yeah that would you guys can help fund my studies
2: <laughs> yeah i would say that um definitely uh you should look for uh uh funded program uh, and I, I, I mean I think New York City is great but I don't understand why that would be I, – I don't I don't know why I would go to Columbia. I guess uh, Chandler, you went to Columbia? <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, but, I, I can uh, talk
1: about that. I mean it did bring me to New York which I'm really glad uh, happened in my life. I was uh, – I, I went right out of undergrad so I had been going to college in Vermont and um, you know, I had a cousin here, and this was a place that, you know, I had visited. But, um, you know, obviously, I had never lived here. And and I was really, you know, I was really interested in the publishing industry. And I worked in book publishing for several years after finishing my MFA. And, um, you know, I got opportunities to do things like I was a reader for the Paris Review when I was in my MFA. Um, You know, I got an internship at a literary agency, which later, I think, helped me get my first jobs in book publishing. So, I mean, I think that I think it's very unlikely that I ever would have moved here if I hadn't had that as a kind of introduction to this place. But that said, um, you know, I was really lucky to have, uh, you know, financial support from my family. I I did get some scholarships, but they definitely did not cover the cost of tuition. And when I talk to my students now um, in these, you know, these classes for adults that I teach, like the one that Steph took at Catapult or um, I also teach for Sackett Street, I always tell my students, like, never go into debt for an MFA because there is no return on investment that you can count on. Um, It's really unlikely that you will make enough money with your writing to pay down those debts. And it it just adds an additional stressor um, that, you know, is going to take away time and energy from your writing life going forward. I know people who went to Columbia who went into debt and regretted it. I know people who went to Columbia who went into debt, but feel like it paid off for them in, you know, other ways in their careers or, you know, the enrichment it provided in their lives. But I think it is so much smarter to go somewhere where you're going to be able to kind of guilt free, give yourself over to your writing and to discovering your voice without that. Immediate feeling of like, okay, I've got to cash this in. So, mm-hmm. right. I, although I don't regret going to Columbia myself, I was in a unique situation, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't give that advice to to somebody else. So, yeah. That,
2: that's my feeling, pretty much. I, I, I don't see how anyone should go thousands and thousands of dollars into debt for an MFA. It doesn't seem uh, reasonable to me, given the difficulty of having a, a you know, a, a self-supporting career as a writer. is very, very hard. I mean, at NC State, we, we have a, you know, tuition waiver for all our students and, and we have, we're fully funded in the sense that everyone gets a, a, a teaching assistantship, which is, with a stipend. It's not a large stipend. It's actually pretty small, but, but it's, you know, it's a start. It's, it, 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 it helps them not to have to go into debt.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so, and I think there are many, many programs that do this. Maybe they aren't in New York City or, or San Francisco, but, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, it does seem to me that there, there are many things to, and, and, there are places that are sort of rolling in dough, like Michigan or Texas, uh, that, uh, because of endowment are able to, um, really fund their stipends very well. So, uh, um, um, I think that anyone thinking of this, this path should, should carefully think about, that. don't go, don't go heavily into debt in order to get an MFA.
3: Yeah. I think the rule of thumb is that, you know, um, yeah, if you get into Michigan or in, and then when you're mentioning Texas, that's so the, yeah, there's a couple of schools in Texas, there's the missioner center at UT Austin, which is the, I think the one you're referencing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, so that one is, yeah. Oh my God. It's like you get $30,000 a year, um, (laughs) without having to teach, uh, on top of a tuition waiver essentially. Um, and then at my program, it's, the stipend is less than that in its Texas State University but um yeah and then you know and then Michigan I think is almost 30,000 as well uh per year so um you know so there is that but uh yeah I think that in general um it is good to like do your research to find out what schools are going to give you money how much money they're going to give you um but yeah the rule of thumb is that if you have to take out like a small loan um, to go to a school that's really good, but is only giving you, say, like $10,000 a year, and you need a little bit more of that to live on, like, that's considered not horrible. Um, mm-hmm. you know, because it's really just, like, to, to live on, but, you know, if it's, if you're paying tuition on top of that, uh, that's, that's where you get into the tricky territory of it seeming like more like a cash cow, uh, you know, program.
0: Let me also. I want to ask you, Steph, because one of the when I applied to grad to a like MFA program, uh, I basically didn't know anything about any of the schools. I, I basically only um, selected the schools based on some vague sense that they might be a little bit more friendly to fantasy and science fiction because, like, you know, so and so had gone here or so and so had gone there. But it was really just basically like a black box as far as what what all these schools would be like. But now there's all these co- internet communities that you were are plugged into, uh, which are just an incredible source of knowledge. And you're like following along. It was actually kind of a little stressful, (laughs) like, (laughs) like like checking, checking these things. You're like, Oh, so-and-so got into this school and -and so-and-so got into that school. And I got rejected from this school and, and, but it's a completely different you know, environment now for people who are applying to MFA programs?
3: Yeah. Um so the first resource that I started using um was I just came across um on Facebook there's the the MFA draft Facebook group. So they have uh, a private group for each year. So um the one for this year would be MFA draft, you know, apostrophe twenty, uh, you know, two zero. Uh and you know I was in MFA draft 19. Um, and you can join any of them that you want. You can go back to previous years so that you can like sift through all the info. Um, But yeah, like that was a huge, huge benefit to me, Um, even though it was extremely stressful as well. Once acceptances started rolling in and I was seeing other people get accepted at places that I wasn't, Um prior to that, it was, you know, that was really the community that pushed me to be like, you know, you really do not have to pay to get your MFA. And it's very much an obsession within that community that, um, you know, if somebody gets into a program that they're, you know, that's not fully funded or that they're going to have to go into significant debt for, a lot of the people in the program encourage them to apply again the next year. And it actually showed me that it's actually completely normal to apply multiple years to an MFA program. Like, I really thought that I was going to, you know, in order to get a fully funded uh, offer uh, that I was gonna have to apply again next year or a year after that, but then Texas State came through and, you know, <laughs> made it better for me. Uh, but other than that, um, you know, it's completely, you know, this community is really, really good. And again, it's not without its, you know, quirks and not without its dramas, but, um, but overall it was extremely helpful. And then they clued me into other, you know, resources like the MFA years website, which has a ongoing list of, um, every fully funded program in the United States. Um, you know, so that's like a huge resource where you can just call through that list and be like, okay, this one's fully funded. This one's fully funded. You know, do I want to live there? Do I like anyone on the faculty there? Um, whereas, you know, other than that, I would have been doing that research like completely on my own and not really knowing where to start. Um, then another thing was I read a book called The Insider's Guide to Graduate Degrees in Creative Writing, and that was written by Seth Abramson. Um, and that, you know, gave me a lot of lists to call through as well, uh, cause he not only listed fully funded programs, but, you know, mostly fully funded programs, which is where Texas State, um, is, you know, in that category. And then there were ones that were partially funded. And, you know, so there's ones that you, you know, you might not know about or that will give you, you know, a lot of money, um, as well, but you just kind of need those lists basically.
0: Yeah. And I just want to emphasize this point that, you know, Steph was saying like some of these programs, they accept six people per year or something. And so, you know, when Steph applied to 20 different programs, you know, I mean, she was like a straight A student in undergrad, you know, she's been to workshops, has some solid publications, uh, good letters of recommendation, everything worked in publishing, worked in publishing. And it was still, you know, uh, you know, out of the twenty schools it was just a couple that you got into. Mm-hmm. So like if if this is something you're serious about, don't just apply to like six schools and expect right. you to necessarily get into one yeah. of them.
1: Yeah, everyone I, thought I was crazy for doing twenty <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I, I don't I didn't think you were crazy at all. I thought that's actually really <laughs> smart because then you have more options too. Like, you know, um Sometimes I think people will shy away from what they see as their reach schools. And it's like I have heard about people getting accepted to Iowa and not getting accepted to anywhere else they applied. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just it's so subjective. So you just have to apply as widely as, you know, you have the time and energy to do and then just see what happens. I mean... Yeah. And I say the same thing to people when they're looking for literary agents, like, you know, apply to or not apply, but uh submit your work to a lot of people because you just never know like who's going to
2: come through. <laughs> right. I I would also advise um um people applying to programs to try to talk to people who are currently students in the program or people who are graduates of the program. Uh, if a program won't put you in touch with anyone, that's huh. sort of a uh a, a little bit of a warning sign. Mm. Uh they ought to be able to uh Pretty freely let you talk to their students. Why not? Uh, and most students are happy to, to do that. Uh, so, you know, if you can, if you can do that, I think you should.
1: Yeah. And once you've been admitted, uh, if, if you're able to visit, like, I think that that's a good idea, too. Um, I actually also got into the Ohio State University with full funding when I was, uh, when I was applying to MFA programs and I visited and I'm, I'm from the Midwest originally. And I just kind of was like, I think I want to have a new experience. Um, but not the fault of anything about that program. I think it's a great one, but it was like, it, it was one of those things where I think getting a sense of where you're going to be and, um, you know, and, and ideally maybe meeting some of the faculty or stuff like that. If you're, if you're able to swing it, I think that that can be helpful if you're choosing between two good options.
2: Be helpful to find out whether the faculty are available to the students. I think some Mm -hmm. programs have really famous writers on their faculty, but they're hardly there or that you can't really expect to, you know, have long conversations about a particular work you're doing. Whereas others, uh, the faculty are very much uh, engaged with the the students' work and, and are available to them.
0: I also just want to point out that all these schools charge application fees. Yeah. So just be aware of that going in that, you know, just applying to 20 schools can be an expensive proposition. Yes. So, so
3: I was lucky to get help from that. That was like my Christmas present from my parents was for them to like, you know, cover my, uh, you know, application fees. Uh, another thing that was a factor for me is that I really didn't want to take the GRE again. Um, I had taken it f- five years ago and it was past its expiration date for, um, applying to it. Otherwise, I would have applied to even more schools, possibly. Um, you know, including NC State, actually, uh, John, yeah. I would have, you know, definitely been interested, but because it had the, um, you know, the GRE requirement, I was like, "Eh, I don't know if I want to do that this year. And then I was like, maybe I'll take it next year if I decide if I end up having to apply again next year anyway. Um, So that's another factor that actually a lot of schools are doing away with now, too, is, um, you know, so every school on my list didn't didn't require it.
2: At NC State, it's the graduate school that requires that, not the English department.
3: So you can just like fail miserably (laughs) on the GRE and it won't matter.
2: That's pretty NCC. much true, yes. Okay. <laughs> I shouldn't say like, that, but yeah.
3: <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm just get, yeah going right in for the kill there. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I mean, I've heard from people, too, that a lot of the schools really, you know, even if you do take the GRE, they they do do not care about your score at all. Well, well, um, in,
2: yeah. in talking about, you know, the admissions process, one of the things that I should be, maybe it's not obvious, is that the the thing we will look at the most is the fiction sample that you send mm-hmm. in. Uh, that's number one. And then, then a personal statement. And then other things like your transcript are not really as important as, as those other, other senses of where you are as a writer.
1: You know, I'd actually be really curious. What do you look for in a personal statement? Because students ask me this all the time, but I've never been on an admissions committee for this. So I just give them my best guess. But well,
2: yeah. well I, maybe different people would have different uh, things. They, but I, one sure. thing I would sort of look out for is, If someone says they want to get the MFA so they can become a college teacher of creative writing, that's really not a a strong (laughs) plus uh, um, because it's not a likely prospect. Um, And, um, you know, I I, I sort of want to get a sense of what kind of writing they want – writer they want to be and what what they care about. And, um, you know, I I, I don't know that uh, – I, I want to f- feel that they're engaged with the uh, the wanting to be writers, wanting to be good writer, a better writer, uh, uh finding their voice more than say uh, uh professional uh, uh, credentials of any yeah. sort.
1: That makes a lot of sense.
3: Yeah, I think um, I mean, yeah, that was my rule of thumb for applying to. Like, even though in my you know first answer to my question here, I did say you know that it does open up the option possibly for me for teaching. Um, you know, I, I'm actually probably planning to go back into marketing after um, my MFA anyway. But um, at the same time, uh, you know, I did make sure that my personal statement was very much about what my writing is like, like what I'm interested in. Um, you know, the the best thing to do is to find something about your writing that connects throughout all of your work and then say, you know, I'm very interested in like, there's a lot of people who would write, I'm very interested in identity. I'm very, and in my case, I'm very interested in, you know, all aspects of belief, like not necessarily religious belief, but, you know, belief in the supernatural, the belief in, you know, political ideology, like stuff like that. Um, and yeah, you know, that sounds like can, a good
2: a good application. You should right. apply, apply at <laughs> NC State. Actually,
3: yeah, <laughs> yeah, I should have. I should have. <laughs> I'll just do it after. Like you, actually, that's another thing. Um Our MFA programs—do they like in the fully funded ones? Can you have had a previous MFA and then apply to another MFA program and not really highlight that you got an MFA and then apply elsewhere? Because <laughs> like I've seen people with two MFAs, or like one of the people in my program this year. Got his MFA in poetry um, at UMass Amherst, I think, and then now he's getting it in fiction. So I don't know, is that something, John, that you guys? Yeah. Are,
2: yes, that happens. Uh, one of it. our, one of my favorite students of recent years is Hel- Helena Bell, who uh, uh, got an MFA in poetry at Southern Illinois University and then came and got an MFA in fiction with us. Yeah, she was on a Nebula ballot uh, some years ago, and oh, wow. and uh, you know writes really terrific stuff, and, uh, and writes both poetry and and fiction.
3: Yeah, I think that well, if somebody had a, had one in like. Of fiction, you know, if they had fiction previously, and then they, you know, applied to say NC State with fiction as well, not saying that I may do that or not, but just (laughs) saying, um, you know, like, is that something that would be a red flag for you guys? Because I can see that certain people there, there is a possibility that you can sort of gain the game, the system because it is really about the writing. And so in a way, they don't really care if you, from my perspective, it doesn't sound like the programs care that much if you, you know, already got an MFA, if you're like, you know, if you even went to prison at some point, they don't seem to really care about no. that as much. as <laughs> – No, like seriously, like there are people in the MFA group that were like concerned, like, "Hey, I have a criminal record," and then everyone's like, "Really, like, you're fine." And then they got into like great schools. Like, it's it's very it's very interesting. This really is about the writing.
2: Well, I uh, you know, I, I guess I'm not sure we have ever had anyone who had an uh, MFA previously in fiction writing come to do fiction. It's, it's possible someone kept that from us, but I don't think that that, that mm-hmm. ever occurred.
0: Well, I was just going to say, I mean, because so many people say that they want to get an MFA so that they, they can teach, or at least, you know, mm-hmm. as one reason that they're doing it. I mean, that was one reason I did it. And I just want to make sure people understand that if you get an MFA, you're probably going to be teaching as an adjunct. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you're not going to be a full tenured professor, almost certainly. And even just the the adjunct jobs are increasingly scarce and increasingly poorly paid and increasingly poorly, you know, poor benefits and so on. And so, um, I just want to make sure people understand that if you get an MFA, you're almost certainly not going to become like a professor that that's your job. I think
1: it's, I think it's really important to point out not just the adjunct thing, but that you will not be teaching creative writing if you don't (laughs) have an excellent publication record. And I I say Mm -hmm. this because I mean, at least in New York City, like, and you know, this is obviously a place with like a high density of creative writers. But I mean, when I yeah, when I finished my MFA, I looked into options about that. And that was like, nothing doing when I had a book come out from a small Canadian press, I looked into teaching, not at the college level, but like at places like Gotham and stuff like that, People were not interested. It was only when I had a book come out from a uh, you know a big five publishing imprint that uh, that that opportunities creative writing teaching opportunities started opening to me. And and then those are still adjunct. Um, so the people that I know who uh, you know have an MFA but don't necessarily have book publications, they're they're often not even teaching creative writing. Um, they're teaching like you know. First year comp or like other you know other kinds of like required classes at at the college level. So I I think that that's really significant. It'll give you teaching experience and it might give you some teaching connections. But you're more likely to be like working in a writing center or you know uh, yeah or or teaching those other kinds of required classes. So
3: yeah, I think what I've come across um, as well is that you know if you are someone who doesn't have significant publications, um, really. The only other way to get a tenure track creative writing, um, you know, position is if you have a PhD in creative writing, which there are like several throughout the country that are also fully funded. I'm not, I don't have a lot of background in those, but I have a that friend is a who's
1: a poet who has a PhD in creative writing from Utah, actually. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, that was actually something I wanted to say earlier in the conversation when we keep talking about the MFA being a terminal degree. I, I think that that's true to a certain extent, but like um, now, I think there is a little bit of this arms race starting to happen where people are going back and getting a PhD either in creative writing at the handful of schools that offer it, or a, you know a PhD in English because that gives them more options in terms of the kinds of things that they they can be you know enabled to teach. So I, I think that. If you want to teach, like you know, an MFA, if it's part of your fellowship, it can give you some opportunities to do that and get experience. But it's not going to open those doors professionally to you in the way that I think a lot of people go into the system thinking.
2: I think I agree. It's uh, really about publications. Even if you had a PhD in creative writing, they're still going to look at your publications. If you if you have a book from a major commercial publisher, that'll make a big difference. Small press, maybe that'll help you. But but uh, if you haven't published significantly. Then it's going to be difficult for you to find a, a, a you know, a, a regular tenure track job. Uh, however, I will say that we will be advertising for a tenure track job at NC State uh, this fall.
3: Uh, <laughs> Good uh, to know. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um. Uh, you know, it it really strikes me I, the whole the arms race thing about this really does make me nervous. Uh, the number of MFA programs there are now in the country, and and now the increasing number of PhD programs in creative writing, makes me wonder if this isn't a little bit of a you know a cash cow situation where all these people who aspire to be writers are being funneled into these programs, and they can certainly get benefit from them. But uh, there's an awful lot of a uh, uh, lot more people getting these degrees than there are employment opportunities for them and uh i it makes me nervous sometimes also i i i feel that uh getting an m f a won't necessarily prove that you're really a good writer or or uh not having one doesn't prove that you're not a good writer mm-hmm. so so uh uh you know i i sort of feel like it's become a kind of Professionalization of creative writing. It didn't exist before the 1960s, you know, before Iowa and I guess the late 40s, but then other, other places started in the 60s and 70s. And it, uh, that never was considered to be the path to becoming a successful writer, uh, you know, going through an academic program and getting a degree. But now it seems increasingly that's what's expected. And maybe I'm just old fashioned, but I sometimes worry that, that, uh, e- despite the fact that I've been part of this, um, trend, uh that that the, the professionalization of creative writing as a kind of uh, uh trade degree uh is uh, a <laughs> is a little bit um um misleading as to what goes on uh, with writing
3: what yeah. do you- oh i was just going to say yeah that's why i think in a way like my my view of it completely shifted over this last year of applying where it shifted to being like okay what place is going to make it so that i can just focus on my writing for 3 years you know it doesn't have to be brand name where, you know, everybody's going to, you know, you know, where, where agents and stuff are going to be chomping at the bit, you know, like that isn't necessarily what it should be for. It really should be for giving yourself three years of not having to go into debt to write, basically. And then you can then maybe that can counteract some of the professionalization where it's like you may. Come out with something great. Ten years later, you may come out with something great. Um, you know, but that it really should just be like almost like a residency.
0: What do yeah, you think? I
1: think that's, that's that's exactly right. I totally agree. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think, John, about the full time versus low residency
2: MFAs? Oh yeah. I don't know that I have a strong prejudice one way or the other. I mean, I teach in a full time program, and I like the I like the sense that the students get to really know each other over a long period of time. Uh, you know they have uh, numerous classes together, and and they spend a lot of time uh, outside of class. Uh, you know, there's the current uh, cohort of of uh, fiction writers has started a badminton club at NC State, so mm-hmm. they play badminton every, every play crucial badminton. I mean, it's it's brutal. It's really awful uh, <laughs> uh, uh, um, on on Saturday mornings. And so I, you know, there's a there's something to be said for that kind of sense of solidarity. You, solidarity you can get when you know someone, you see them over a long period of time, uh, you see them outside of classes. Uh, on the other hand, I think that uh, uh, you know, low-res programs have an awful lot to offer, especially if you have a life where you can't be there. You can't give up two years or three years of your life in order to to uh, to be a full-time student. And so um, I, I don't have any prejudice against that. It seems to me that they can be very valuable. I mean, you mentioned James Patrick Kelly teaches at one of these
0: low residency MFA programs, and I know you're good friends with him. I was just curious if you've ever have this. Have you
2: ever talked about what his experiences? We or? we frequently talk about um, you know different students who uh, actually we had one of our students come out of our program who went and did the low res at Stone Coast. So I guess that does happen. Um, and and uh, you know, there's a little bit of a different feeling to the stone coast program because it is genre uh oriented and so people are really it's got a little bit of the the clarion feel okay or or uh where there's people are there for that particular reason and it's not just a a writing in general they're they're genre specific um you know i i I don't know that we talk about uh what the efficacy of of one versus the other It seems to me that people come successfully out of, of both kinds
3: I think the only thing is with low residency, um, majority of them are not going to have any funding whatsoever because they are, you know, you're, you're only on campus like two weeks out of the year, I think in most of the cases. Um, and, uh, I think there's a couple, there's really, there's like some top three, like Stone Coast is very good. Um, there's, uh, Bennington has a low residency MFA degree that's very well respected. Um, and then Warren Wilson is in North Carolina. That's really, right. really selective, actually. And that's like another one that I think sometimes gives some funding. Um, and then there's Vermont College of Fine Arts, which is another one that, um, you know, is well known. Um, but I think gives, you know, negligible funding too. So that's one thing to consider is if you're keeping your full time job and you're keeping your life, then you may end up having to pay a bit for that. But it is significantly less expensive, I think, than like paying, you know, like for Columbia, for example, which is I think for two years, like one hundred and twenty thousand dollars at this Holy point cow. now. Yeah, wow. it's crazy. I, I'm on their wait list, uh, <laughs> but I'm, <laughs> I'm planning to uh, decline if if I get off of it. So, Unless anyone
0: wants to donate one hundred twenty thousand. dollars Yeah, that would
3: be awesome. Then I could then I could uh, yeah go to Columbia. That could, that would be a dream. Seriously. I'll also,
0: just in terms of low residency, the other one that I'm aware of is Seton Hill, which has a oh, yeah. program focusing on popular fiction. I don't know a lot about it, but that's you know just people I know kind of or you know have talked about it.
3: And Emerson does too. They have a popular fiction um, low residency portion of their. they also are a, a full residency MFA degree in most cases, but for their popular fiction, it's low residency. Uh, but they're not fully funded either.
1: Yeah, I think low residency programs are a great option for people who are, you know, parents or who have like, um, another career going on that they don't want to take a leave of absence from. But I'd also say, like, it's important to remember that there are, uh, non-credit writing workshops that you can take in a lot of places that aren't degree granting, but can give you some of the same intensity. Like, um, I mean, in New York, definitely there are a bunch of organizations, some of which I've taught for, like Catapult, Sackett Street, there's also, like, Gotham, the 92nd Street Y, like, uh, the JCC. And, yeah. I, does, oh, yeah, NYU SPS, I've actually taught for them. Um, <laughs> so I should have thought of them right away. Um, but, yeah, you know, so you can end up finding those communities of, of writers who, you know, will give you feedback. And um, if you manage to find a cohort of people that are equally serious, that can be just as useful in terms of the kind of writing education that you get out of it as a degree-granting program. So and online also, there are a bunch of places that offer those now like Lit Reactor and um, mm-hmm. Sackett Street, I think, has online classes as well. So, I mean, I think that sometimes people think, well, I want more creative writing education. I need to get this degree. But if you don't actually need the degree for any particular reason, then it's worth evaluating those other options to see if they might work just as well for you.
2: Do any of you have a uh, any sense of the kind of uh, spec fic that's getting written through these programs is different from what it used to be? Uh, um, I, 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 it does seem to me that there's a a kind of uh, democratization of speculative fiction or the sense in which people – a lot of people who would never have been writing this kind of thing before are now writing it. But it's not exactly the hardcore stuff that it used to be 40 years ago. I don't know, you know, you're, you're all younger, so you probably don't have a sense of that at all. Um, So, um, well, no,
0: I, I, well, I'm, I'm older, but I mean, uh, (laughs) no, I would agree with, I mean, my sense is that, yeah, that there's a much greater emphasis on diversity and a much uh, less, much less of an emphasis on science, you know, or like technology or something Mm -hmm. or the future, especially the far future. Um, I don't know if I have a lot of data to back that up, but that's just my sense of it.
3: Yeah, I mean, from what I've been seeing, I mean, I I unfortunately fall into that. I guess what the the, well, not maybe fortunately and and unfortunately, I'm in that category of like new speculative fiction writers that are like slipstreamy at times. Um, but at the same time, I think one of the things that maybe this is coming from is that people don't want to be limited to what they can write. So I feel strongly that in a lot of these programs, I think, yeah, a lot of people are writing more like soft science fiction at the most, um, or maybe like, you know, what's called like domestic fabulism rather than fantasy yes, necessarily. Yes, right. Um <laughs> But, uh but then I think sometimes a lot of those people, you know, may get struck with an idea that is more traditional in the genre. And then, you know, but that, and, and then they at least are like, oh, okay, well, you know, I wrote that sort of stuff. Like maybe I can Get more fully into you know some hard hard science fiction right now, um you know depending on what strikes their fancy. Like I'm very much a writer that like want I want the option to write nonfiction. I want the option to write you know basically everything except for poetry. I I I don't know I'm I'm not a poet at all, um even though I'd like to be. But yeah, so you know maybe there's that aspect. But I do agree that it's often very much you know soft genre at the most I think in a lot of these programs.
1: I think it's a question. I mean, I, I can only really talk about, like, the way that I go about teaching this stuff, I guess, but, like, I feel like it's about owning all of your influences. Um, <laughs> instead of thinking, I, I think actually, um, to, to go to your point, John, about, like, um, you know, not wanting people to be sort of hermetically sealed from each other. I think that, uh, I think that more writers are feeling like they don't have to sort of hermetically seal their sets of influences from each other. So, um, if there's somebody that, you know, consumes like Star Trek or can, you know, consumes, uh, you know, stuff in the horror genre or whatever, then allowing that stuff to, exert an explicit force on their fiction without being exclusively that, like, you know, without um, sort right. of subsuming mm-hmm. all other interests to that. I, I think that that seems to be something that, that I'm seeing that there's, there's kind of like a, a freedom to mash things up, you know, um, and to sort of see tropes and conventions as tools rather than as these hard and fast guidelines that you, you know, that you can't, you can't break. Um,
2: it's very postmodern. It's sort of taking taking yeah. things that have been u- around and saying, I'm going to use them for my own purposes. I'm not going to be used by them.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so I think that that's really inspiring. I mean, we've mentioned Kelly Link a bunch of times. I mean, she's obviously a writer who's really steeped in all of these different uh, sort of, you know, sub-genre like fields. And you can really see her employing those conventions like you know when they're useful to her and then discarding them when th- when they no longer are i mean um she has an excellent story in get in trouble called two houses which uh, does start I as a space opera sounds you know? like a s-
2: space story but it's weird it's a it's a <laughs> horror story yeah yeah
1: well and then it becomes like a telling ghost stories around a campfire story it turns right, out right. that the the space story is the frame until it, at the very end you realize it's not just a frame um but that's a case where I don't feel that in any way she's condescending to either set of influences. I think that she's fully embracing both. So I, I guess that I'm a little uncomfortable with how in this conversation there's been a sense of, oh, like, you know, slipstream is sort of, you know, something that, that, that that's wandered a field of, of the, mm-hmm. of the rigors of, of, you know, hard sci-fi or high fantasy. I actually think that, um, it's, it's more, deeply respectful to those forms because it's interrogating and repurposing them and keeping them alive like you know I, mm-hmm. I i don't ever want my own work to be a museum piece i want it to be something new um i had like a, a former student actually from the catapult class uh had this great tweet that i keep quoting um where he said that like you know it's interesting how often he hears genre defying and genre defining used interchangeably i thought that that was really profound because i think that mm-hmm. like when you kind of uh yeah, when you kind of rethink what a genre can be, then that ends up being the thing that other writers emulate and that really burns itself onto the memories of readers.
0: All right, so we're almost out of time, and Steph did write all these notes. So mm-hmm. do you have anything on your notes that you uh, didn't get a chance to talk about yet?
3: Um, I mean, I think that was it. I mean, I have this list, but I don't need to go through it. Um, I do think that maybe we could share it you know, on social media or on your website or something, we can write it up so that, um, but basically I have a list of like, you know, fully funded slash mostly fully funded programs that are, you know, that I know that are, um, you know, okay with some aspect of speculative fiction and that they may be worth looking into. Um...
0: Yeah, so maybe, yeah. um, we'll put that on our Geeks Guides to yeah. the Galaxy Facebook page. Yeah, it might be too Twitter boring. Well,
3: I'd be super interested in somebody going through <laughs> a list of 20 schools or 30 schools, but I, I don't know if I should do that to everyone else, but.
0: <laughs> no, it'll drive traffic to our social media. Yeah, that's, cool. that's true.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, I also just wanted to throw out that, you know, Steph and I are moving to the Austin area. So uh-huh. um, it's kind of cool because if you've listened to our, you know, we did a couple episodes about, you know, the, the listeners strike back. And so you may remember Zach Chapman from episode 200. And you may remember Tyler and Chrissy Lutz from episode 300. And they all live in the Austin area. So we actually just, we were out there just uh, looking at apartments uh, this week and met up with them and you know, had dinner and that was cool. And so, uh, you know, we don't know a ton of people there. So if anyone is listening to this and, you know, you might be interested in some sort of Geeks Guide to the Galaxy, uh, you know, meetup or something like
2: that. You, you, know, should, you should get to know Christopher Brown, who is a very interesting writer who's done strange things with uh, with the genre and the edges of it.
0: Yeah, I I haven't read any of his books, but I'm I'm certainly aware of who he is. And I I saw that he lives in Austin. So, yeah, maybe I can uh, get in touch with him once we once we hit town.
3: I'm writing that down in my list. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, that sounds. yeah. I mean, it's I'm I'm really excited to, you know, sort of like what Chandler was saying, where because I got this opportunity to move to a completely different state, I lived in New York state my whole life. Um, you know, I feel like I've done the New York City thing as a writer, um, and I want to see what it's like to be elsewhere as a writer. Uh, so we'll be in, yeah, the Austin area, uh, particularly, uh, we have a, we got a place that's like 10 minutes from the Texas State University campus. So that's in San Marcos, which is about a half hour outside of Austin. Don't give too many,
0: too much identifying information. uh, (laughs) You know, we don't want fans just coming around. Yeah, yeah.
3: All the fans that are going to (laughs) come by, um, but yeah, so I mean, we're close enough to Austin where you know we can we can go there like a lot basically. So yeah, if anyone is it, is listening to this and is very uh, you know is in the Austin area and wants to meet up, that would be cool.
0: I also just want—I don't know if 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 we explained this yet—but Stephanie and I first met at a Karen Russell reading. Oh yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> and so it's a it's a weird like quirk of fate that now Karen Russell is going to be. Teaching at the school where Stephanie's going. Yeah.
3: Yeah, like I don't know if I believe in anything supernatural except for Karen Russell because she's been (laughs) like this like weird part in my life where like, you know, the first time that Dave and I met was, yeah, at a Karen Russell reading. Actually, at that reading, I had asked, I had raised my hand during the Q&A and asked her what her thoughts were on MFA programs. And she had said, don't pay to get an MFA. (laughs) Uh, So then I, uh, you know, and then that was where Dave and I met. um, And now, of course, the school that gave me the best offer is where she's teaching, at least temporarily. Uh, She's going to be there another year. And then they're going to bring in another um, endowed chair uh, who rumors are that it's somebody who's just as exciting so uh some people are betting that it's carmen maria machado or you know somebody that else that has that speculative edge
0: but we don't know that but we, we don't can't, we can't make any promises we don't we
3: really don't know i was not I, i've not been told we have any no inside info. information yeah
0: <laughs> um all right yeah so we are pretty much out of time so maybe just uh could we get some final thoughts um so um chandler do you have any any other things you wanted to talk about that we haven't gotten to yet
1: I feel like we've pretty much covered everything. Basically, I would just say, you know, if you're going to get an MFA, really think about it as like, how can you produce the work that's, you know, the dearest to your heart and, you know, the, the fullest expression of, uh, you know, of, of, of what you're after in your own fiction during that time. So I think that. You know, funding helps because it gives you the freedom to feel like you can experiment without it being like, you know, you're going to lose that return on an investment, uh, finding faculty members that inspire you. Um, and, you know, you can never predict exactly who your cohort is going to be, but getting a sense of, uh, past and present students, I think is, is useful. Um, but, you know, be selfish about it. Think about it as like, this is your time to, you know, to do what you want with your work. Um, and as long as you're thinking about it that way, you'll probably get something out of it.
0: And how about
2: John? Any final thoughts? Um, I think if you do go to an MFA program, um, think of it as an opportunity to to read a lot of things and think a lot of things that you might not otherwise uh, read or think about. And and uh, you're going to run run into you'll be in a room full of other people who are all desperate to write well and be published and so that's a very uh exciting prospect uh but but i, I think as uh kendler said um sort of to thine own self be true i mean you find out who it is you you are and what you want to do and not not let the the force of faculty or the cohort necessarily push you in a direction that doesn't feel right to you but i, I most people are not going to let that happen i think
0: I guess one question that just occurred to me, John, is it said in your bio that you helped organize the MFA program at North Carolina State in the first place. And I was just curious yes. if you have any advice for anyone else who might want to organize an MFA program, particularly one that's open or
2: focuses on fantasy and science fiction. Um well, the, the main thing that was involved in that was a tremendous uh, – it was n- navigating the bureaucracy of the state university system and the board of governors, which is probably something I needn't go into here. <laughs> <laughs> uh But that, you know, you have to – a state university, it's all about serving the s- citizens of the state. And so you have to somehow connect up what you want to do in the program with what the university – what the bureaucracy thinks it wants to do. Uh, and then, and, and with the state legislature looking over your shoulder, which has a little, I guess it has something to do with speculative fiction there. <laughs> uh, it's dystopian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was, it was interesting. It was a natural outgrowth of what we were doing here already. We had been having increasing numbers of students come and do, uh, MAs in English, but with creative writing theses, uh, people like Andy Duncan. And so we had very good writers coming in and we thought, well, why not? S- you know, s- s- propose an MFA where we could we we could do this kind of thing.
0: Well, because what I've heard just anecdotally is that in a lot of these programs they have a lot of students coming in who want to write speculative fiction and they have no apparatus really for teaching it. Right. And so I I sort of hear sometimes from people who are like, you know, we have this um, demand and we we're, we're not meeting it. And I and they just are looking for advice on sort of how they can well you know create that
2: infrastructure for teaching that. Th- they probably should read it <laughs> and and try to learn more about it. Although, uh, uh, um, it seems to me that the younger professors are much more hip to this kind of thing than the older guys, you know. And, and so the people who were educated as I was in a very traditionalist, new critical scheme of uh, literary study, uh, tend to be a little bit uncomfortable with and unfamiliar with uh, speculative fiction, but people who are under 35 who get their doctorates now they grew up in an environment where this was much more of an option, uh, for a way of thinking about writing. And so I think that they're much more open to it. Um, so that, that is sort of in some ways would, would take care of itself. I would hope.
0: Yeah. I feel like that's just the right answer to any question. Is just read more speculative fiction. <laughs> yeah. You never go wrong with that one.
3: <laughs>
0: uh, Steph, final thought.
3: Uh, well, I almost like don't necessarily, I mean, I think because I'm, uh, you know, and uh, I'm an upcoming student, I'm not, uh, you know, I haven't been through the program yet. Uh, I have to say that I I really loved what, what both John and Chandler were saying. Um, so I was taking that in as a listener as well. Um, But yeah, I think my final thought is just uh you know if you're applying to these programs like do a lot of research um you know apply widely um because you just never know where you're going to get in um and uh and there's also a thing about waitlists so if you get into on a waitlist for a school uh you know just remember that there's a pretty good chance you may end up getting in cuz not everybody is going to you know accept the position or accept the uh The uh, The offer offer. that they were given um, at the first school because they might have gotten into another school. And, you know, so wait lists are actually a huge thing um, in these sorts of programs, much more than like in undergrad where you get on a wait list and you probably, you know, never hear from them again. Um, You know, these schools take their wait lists very, very seriously. Um, So that's another thing to to think about.
2: I would second that about the wait list that we've, we've had any number of really good students come through the wait list.
3: I've heard of actually some people that even got rejected from schools and then got accepted later on because the school just sort of made it through their wait list and they were like, Oh, well, we still have, you know, these a couple of other students that we rejected them, but we really liked them and so then so even a rejection doesn't mean <laughs> a rejection sometimes. Not that never happened for me, but some lucky souls <laughs> get that. <laughs>
1: Well, and definitely people do apply multiple years. I mean, that's something yes. I've certainly heard about, too. So, um, yeah, congratulations on, on getting it the first time. That's fabulous.
3: Thank you. Yeah, I, I really thought I, – I mean, I was messaging with Chandler, like, constantly <laughs> throughout this, and I was like, I think I'm going to have to apply again next year, like this or that. So, yeah, but, you know, I, at first I was seeing that as a failure, but then just seeing – People apply, you know, three years in and then getting into their dream school, you know, it just it, it, it really shows you just if you keep at it, you just never know what's going to happen.
0: All right, well, I think that's a good note to end on. Congratulations, Stephanie. Good thanks. job. <laughs>
3: Yay.
2: Have fun. Yeah. Have fun. There.
3: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
0: All right. And so we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Steph Grossman, Chandler Clank-Smith and John Kessel. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Steve.
2: Thank you.
0: And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Steph Grossman, Chandra Klang smith and John Kessel for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Arthur Brown, who just made a one-time contribution to the show via PayPal. So a big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show,